Hi, everyone. Welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Dozens of illegal gambling parlors have been busted in San Diego County. Reporter Christina Davis has more. Then the opinion team asked San Diegans whether they'd consider leaving California. Andrew Kleski will share their answers. First, the news. Everyone 16 and older in San Diego County is now eligible to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Previously, vaccines were limited to people based on their jobs, age, or medical conditions. This comes exactly four months after the first shots were administered to healthcare workers in the county on December 15, 2020. Halfway through April, more than 2 million doses have been administered in the county. 1.2 million San Diegans have received their first doses, and as of Wednesday, almost 760,000 are fully vaccinated. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria unveiled a proposed budget Thursday that includes millions for small business aid, expanded efforts to address homelessness, and social equity initiatives. The mayor plans to cover the new spending with federal COVID-19 relief funds and targeted budget cuts, including reductions in library hours and police overtime. The proposed budget also includes money for raises for city workers, hiring more firefighters, funding the convention center, and approving the city's climate action plan. Gloria's $1.7 billion proposed spending plan is for the fiscal year that begins July 1st. It would use $141 million of the $306 million in federal aid San Diego was awarded this spring. The former amphibious assault ship Bonham Richard left San Diego Thursday morning for the last time, bound for a scrapyard in Texas. The ship was ravaged by fire in July and will be cut apart and sold for scrap, according to the Navy. The ship burned for four days as temperatures on board climbed to more than 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. Navy officials said the fire likely started in the lower vehicle storage area. In December, the Navy declared the ship a total loss, saying the price to repair it would be $2.5 billion to $3.2 billion. The FBI raided two dozen illegal gambling parlors Wednesday, bringing charges against 47 people. Federal indictments unsealed Wednesday focus on alleged casino owners and their employees. Several people also faced charges of selling methamphetamine to patrons as well as being felons in possession of guns. Christina Davis covers courts and criminal justice at the UT. Christina, this was a massive raid. You wrote that 450 law enforcement officials searched 24 locations, arresting 35 people. What did they find? It was really, this is like the end of a two-year investigation. So I'm not sure exactly what they found yesterday, but over the full two years of investigating um, these illicit casinos, they found 44 guns, more than 12 pounds of meth, a total of $263,000 in cash, Um, which actually seems kind of low to me, uh, considering the amount of money these places pull in, and uh, 640 gambling machines. And uh, these are pretty big machines too. Like uh, you see footage of them, you know, having to haul them away in these huge flatbed trucks. Could you describe these casinos for me? I know this is not sort of the traditional casino that most of us think of when we, when we think about a casino. What, where are these places and, and what do they look like? Well, the interesting thing about these places is, is they're, they're kind of hidden in plain view. I mean, they're, um, this investigation uh, especially focused on um, City Heights and then also in some of the surrounding neighborhoods in kind of that mid-city and East San Diego area. Um, so these were like in apartment buildings or a lot of them were just in like 
two, three, four bedroom houses that from the street just look like a house. Um, you know, neighbors would kind of uh, complain sometimes to the cops saying, man, we have, um, well, A, we have crimes happening all over and they seem to be connected to this property. But also you just have people streaming in and out. We, there was one neighbor who said, you know, uh, thought that it was like a, some kind of a drug dispensary maybe going on, but not even knowing it was a casino. Um, you know, some of the, I, I was looking at some of the houses where, where they made these busts yesterday. And I mean, some of them are like really nice houses um, that you, you just wouldn't, wouldn't think of. But yeah, a lot of them, you know, it's, it's these kind of big stand-up machines, um, you know, like kind of like a, like one of those arcade game type machines that you sit at. And uh, a lot of them are usually crowded into uh, one room and you can play any kind of game like poker, keno, blackjack, all that kind of stuff. Um, some of the casinos have these large fish table games that have become really popular um, where like four to six people can actually sit around it and play. Also there are slot machines as well. Who's, who's behind these establishments? Um, your story said that the casino operators and employees were charged. Who is running these parlors and, and what charges were brought against them? So just from the court documents that I read yesterday, and, and I'll tell you that there were, there were like several different indictments. Um, so it was a little hard to put it all together on deadline yesterday. Um, but uh, there, it, it seems like there are a few key players that the, the investigation was, was looking into. Um, and there was uh, one man who uh, I think is accused of owning at least nine uh, of these establishments. Um, he seemed to be uh, one of the bosses or the owners. Um, and he would, I guess he, he said in some, some conversation with a, a, a source who was on the investigation that you know, he made sure that he never stepped foot in any of his establishments. He, he kept distance from it. Um, and, and that was really to just protect himself from any kind of you know, arrest or prosecution. And he would let his employees take the fall. Um, and that's, that's pretty much um, how these owners operate. You know, they, they, uh, they own them, but they, they let their um, employees run all the day-to-day -day, um, operations. Um, there were a couple other uh, players that seemed to, that the investigators were focusing on a little bit more than others. Um, and it's a little unclear to me exactly how many casinos they owned or were running. So I think as the investigation investigation goes on, we'll we'll see, look more into that. What is the effect that these casinos have um, on their communities? The U.S. Attorney in your story called these gambling parlors magnets for crimes, but I mean, what kinds of crimes are associated, and what is the overall impact to to the neighborhoods they are in? So I think. Uh, a lot of people think of gambling um, as kind of this victimless crime. I mean, obviously you have some issues um, with gambling addiction um, and such, but um, you know, sports betting and, and, and slot machines and, and poker and stuff, you know, it's, it's, it's not like this uh, dangerous violent crime or anything like that. Um, the problem with these casinos are that a lot of them are run um, uh, by gang associates, uh, or the you know the security uh, is done by by gang members uh, or, or violent felons, um, and in a lot of these casinos, really meth is the draw. Um, you've got you know independent drug dealers who are either comping patrons meth or or selling meth, and that's 
really uh, to keep the gamblers, you know, in front of their machines playing maybe for longer than they, they otherwise would, and also just keeping them loyal customers and just keeping them coming back for more. Um, so that, I think that really is part of the draw of these casinos is, is the meth use. Um, and along with, you know, guns and drugs, um, you're gonna have problems in the neighborhood. Um, there's, a, there's a statistic that um, I found in one of the search warrant affidavits that was quite shocking. It said uh, from July 2018 to July 2020, so a two-year period, or actually three-year period, um, more than 400 crime cases and more than 300 arrests were documented within a stone's throw of 36 known gambling parlors. So that's homicide, shootings, stabbings, assaults, robberies, thefts, drug sales, and gun possession. Um, so yeah, that's, that's not a place that I would necessarily want to be living next door to. Okay, you know, you mentioned this this investigation has been ongoing for the past couple years. Um, clearly, this was going on before the pandemic, but do you think the pandemic had anything to do with um, maybe the popularity of these illegal parlors just because, you know, legal card rooms and casinos have been closed down for the, you know, the majority of the past year? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Terry uh, Figaro and I actually talked to an expert about that um, back in December when we did our first story on this. And I think it's uh, kind of hard to say one way or another. Um, yeah, we do know that there were traditional casinos that were shut down. The problem with this is, I, A, I don't think these are really traditional casinos. I think people that are going to traditional casinos are gonna do that and, and, and may not come to places like this. Um, like I said earlier, I think drug use was a big driver. We do know though that they were operating during the pandemic. A lot of gambling machines and, and tight, rooms and, and small apartments, as you can see from some of the pictures in the story, you know, who knows how, what kind of health and safety measures uh, the operators were running, if masks were required and that kind of thing. Um, so, so I think it would be safe to say that um, this is not the kind of, uh, you know, activity or place you want to be going in the middle of a pandemic. Are there thought to be more illegal casinos in San Diego County, or does this take care of the majority of them? I don't know the answer to that question for sure, but in my conversations um, on this issue, I wouldn't be surprised to, to learn that there were a lot more that, um, you know, are, are being run by different groups. You know, these, these groups here that were focused as part of this investigation, you know, they didn't run every single uh, illegal casino in the county. Uh, and I think we know that, you know, there there were other illegal casinos that have been um, almost stumbled upon over the past year or so that we've written about separately. Um, there was a there was a, a home in Spring Valley where someone was shot. Um, you know, and the shooting call, the deputies came and um, you know discovered this casino. Um, there was uh, you know down in San Diego off of the eight. Um, there was an, a shooting. Uh, again, uh, and uh, cops came and investigated and found two motel rooms being, you know, as full of gambling machines. Um, and so I think those were, were probably unconnected from this investigation, the people in this investigation. So I think it'd be safe to say that there are a lot more out there and, you know, maybe they're under investigation. I'm, I'm not sure if they're part of a, a larger organized crime circle or they're just kind of independent operators. You actually found this story in a kind of interesting way. Will you, will you tell me more about that? Yeah, so um, I was actually aware of this investigation um, several months ago. 
Um, and it was because we came across a search warrant on this investigation that apparently was supposed to be sealed in court, but it wasn't, and, and I saw it. Um, and uh, so I got with my um, colleague, Terry Figueroa, and um, she and I had been seeing um, some different unrelated casino, underground casino busts over the past year. Um, and been wanting to write a story about this issue. Um, we were definitely seeing it, you know, in the police water and everything. So when I got that search warrant, I said, you know, Terry, we have to write the story now. I have the search warrant. We actually wrote about this investigation back in December, and we knew that there were going to be um, some busts, you know, down the road. And so, you know, when I found out yesterday morning uh, that they had um, hit all these houses, the FBI, um, you know, I knew that this this was the actual um, the end of this investigation. So, um, in writing it, I have to say uh, that I was surprised at how many people were actually indicted as part of this. Um, there were forty seven, um, and and twenty four places hit at once. I mean, that is it, that is a much bigger investigation than I was even anticipating. Now let's turn to opinion. Andrew Kleski is our reader engagement editor. Hi, Andrew. Um, first, I was wondering about the your say question from last week about California. Maybe you could explain that a little more and, and let us know if we got any responses. Well, in, uh, in response to a story we had about just crazy runaway housing prices and, uh, and the other challenges facing California, we asked readers whether they'd ever given serious consideration to moving out of California. Particularly for homeowners, that's a, a large amount of money sitting in equity in your home that would go a lot farther elsewhere. And uh, we got so many responses that we continued it for a second week. And now we're gonna continue it the third week because we've never had this kind of response before. Wow. And the responses were pretty pretty surprising. Uh, we, I thought we'd get more given the types of letters we often receive on this subject. We usually get a lot of letters from people saying, oh, California's going down the tubes. I'm getting out of here. Uh, everybody's leaving. And it just reminds me of the old Yogi Berra joke about uh, nobody wants to be there anymore because it's so crowded. <laughs> and that is really what's happening is people are arguing. Uh, there, there's too many, com too many people are coming here. N nobody wants to be here anymore. So I was surprised by the number of responses we got from people who said, no, they're not leaving. And that included from people who'd moved away several times. It included people who were off living somewhere else and hoping they could come back. So, and a lot of factors, a lot of factors like uh, not just the weather, you know, the weather is an easy one, but it was the people and the activities and the, the topography and the ocean and all the various things, the proximity to Mexico, uh, the diversity of food and culture and all that stuff. So everything that California, and then one of our letter writers just basically listed everything in California. Just <laughs> the beaches, the trees, the this, the that, you know, and on and on. It's a, it's a funny little list of all the famous landmarks of San Diego and California. Ah, I look forward to reading that one. It sounds like a bucket list of it's, some things I should check out. It's fun. It is. You can actually just say, I'm going to go look at all of these things. Um, so, I mean, did the responses tip in one way or the other? Or is it 50-50 or? 
as I said, I was surprised how many we got from people who said they uh, would never leave. And uh, believe it or not, more people wrote along those lines than the other way. I would say probably two to one. We got we got a lot of responses. Um, I would say two to one were people saying, I've been elsewhere. I'm never going back. I'm going to stay right here. Yeah, well, that's amazing. We got so many responses. It's going into a third week. Um, people can send in uh, their response, 500 words, right, to your they, say. They can try. The problem is, like I said, we've got <laughs> so many already. And I don't want to go I don't want to go four weeks or five weeks, but we okay, really, that's true. we, we could have gone for, for weeks on this. So maybe we'll, maybe we'll give it a year and revisit the subject. Maybe things will have changed sufficiently that maybe all those people will change their mind by then. Yeah. We'll have to check in with them. Okay. So nobody write in, don't give Andrew any more work. You're um, always, you're always welcome <laughs> to write in. Okay. Well, speaking of that, I did want to talk about just um, the rules for writing in. So what do people need to know about how often they can write in, how many words they should send, what other information? Uh, give us the scoop. Sure. Well, we get we get a lot of confusion on that still, even though uh, every day in the paper, there's a little box in the letters that kind of gives you a basic outline of how, uh, how letters work. And all day online with all of our letters packages, there's a little box in there that actually links to our policies but they're pretty simple. Basically, a letter is 150 words or fewer. Uh, you can have a letter published in the paper once a month. Um, you can send as many as you want. I often get that question. How many times can I send a letter? You can send them as many times as you want. I'm only going to print one a month. But uh, I actually have a few letter writers who just say, I don't I don't care how many times I'm published. It helps to just write a letter some. And that's that's a fun thing for, for some people who think, well, letters are kind of a, a dying art with things like Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that replacing them. Uh, these are people who find some real uh, solace in writing a letter to the editor, knowing one person on the other side is actually going to read it and possibly put it in the newspaper for others to read. I think, I think that's one of the strengths of letters to the editor is anybody can tweet Anybody can write a comment on a on a post. If you look at a Yahoo news story, they'll have 10,000 comments on it. I can guarantee you nobody read all 10,000 of those comments. But when an editor picks eight to 10 letters to put in the newspaper every day, you can pretty much count a lot of people are going to read those letters. We can talk a little bit more about the fact checking process because I know sometimes you go back and forth with writers about you know what can go in a letter and what can't based on if it's true. Uh, how do you vet those? Well, letters are opinion, and as long as things are presented intelligently as opinion, uh, you can kind of get away with anything. You if if you you could cleverly couch even a non factual thing as an opinion. Uh, you could say something, well, I think the moon is made of cheese. Um, that's not going to get in because obviously it's not true. It's enough not true that I wouldn't. But it might give me a moment to pause. I might say, well, that is their opinion. Is that worth discussing? No, the cheese one isn't. But there are others that are like that. If you really feel this way, we'd like to hear it. But more, we want to hear your uh, a means of substantiating that belief. If you believe that, let's just say, Donald Trump is the tallest president ever, and that's the basis of your whole argument, and I know that he's not, and I can prove he's not, that letter's not going to run. As much as it's your opinion that he is, that's not going to run. 
So we do have to hold them to facts. Uh, facts still matter. And the letters, given our limited letter space, the ones that prevent the most cogent, intelligent arguments and base those intelligent arguments on facts are the ones that are going to get in the paper. And when you talk a little bit about balance, you know, you get a lot of letters on a lot of different subjects, both sides. Do you always do 50-50? Do you try to make it reflect, uh, you know, the letters overall that you've received? How does that work? Well, it, it's, it's a little complicated to explain, but what I aim for is balance, which is not so much a quota of the number of letters we received. And the reason a quota doesn't work is sometimes I'll get 50 letters on one side of a subject and one on the other. Well, if I were to just run one and one, people would think, oh, letter writers are equally split over the subject. So I try, I would usually run more of the one that uh, got the most uh, responses, but I wanna make sure there is also balance. So I wouldn't just run, you know, 50 to one is a great ratio. So if I ran five of the 50 and, the, and didn't run the one, that would be absolutely fair because the vast majority of people are on the one side, but I don't do that. I try to offer the other side's opinions just so there's something for people to see that this is not a, you know, a monogamous opinion that everybody feels the same way about everything. I want them to know that their neighbors and friends and the people they bump into the grocery store have different opinions on these subjects. So we try to present a, a wide array of opinions, not so much a quota of what we received. Any other tips or guidance for people that you know want to write in and would also like to see their letter in print? Shorter is better. If you can make your argument in a short, pithy letter, that works great because while we do let you go to 150 words and we let you go to 500 words in your state topics, um, we do have limited room in the paper and uh, shorter letters do tend to get in, particularly if they're timely, if they're uh, related to our coverage, that's the thing that I really look for is people responding to the coverage that we're putting out there and either taking us to task or taking the people in the story to task. Um, and that way it's a it's more of a conversation about our news coverage than just random topics thrown into the newspaper. You know, sometimes I'll get letters from people and they want to talk about, you know, the Battle of Hastings or the War of 1812. <laughs> That those really aren't relevant to today. Let's let's try to focus on something that you know was maybe in the paper in the past. You can find these stories online at San Diego Union I'm Christy Totten, host of the San Diego News Fix. Thanks for listening.